Welcome to this week's episode of Grow or Die. My name is Alora Chestikoff, and I am from Firebird Summit. My partner in this podcast is Lawrence Henderson from Boss LLC. Every week we meet and discuss coaching topics relative to professional development, personal development, business, and entrepreneurship. Join us and see if there's anything else you'd like to add to the conversation. All righty. Welcome to this week's episode of Grow or Die. I am Alora Chestikoff from Firebird Summit. And I am Lawrence Henderson from Boss. How are you doing, Alora? I am having an adjustment week, I think. It's, um, hmm. it's been interesting to sort of watch the opening up that's happening here in South Florida. Yeah. Um, and I see a mix of, you know, serious like quarantine fatigue which I completely get I'm also seeing some alarmingly irresponsible behavior which is kind of appalling and concerning you know and it's just it's kind of all over the map and and it's really um it's kind of a lot to take in and and I am not always not always sure I know what I think of it um at any given point in time because it seems to you know different things will strike me as as Oh my God, are you kidding me? And others are like, no, I get it. I, just, I want to go for a jog too. I want to walk the dog. I want to, you know, go outside. I want to, you know, not have to cook all the time. I want to, you know, go down and get a Starbucks. Like, like there are so many things like where I'm like, I have some sympathy. And then, you know, I live in a bunch of, surrounded by a bunch of other um, uh, uh, Skyres condos. And, you know, there've been parties until like four in the morning in some of these places. And it looks like spring break. And I'm thinking to myself, then I'm, then there's the part of my brain that's like, what the hell's the matter with you people? <laughs> you know? And it's kind of like, yeah. it's really, it's really hard to um, keep a, like a consistent, I feel like I'm being inconsistent, right? Cause I feel like on one hand, I'm like, no, no, I want to get out of my house. I want to, you know, I, I, I'm going crazy. I can't stand it anymore. And the other hand, yeah. it's like, you have like 40 people packed into like, you know, 700 square feet for a party that goes on till four o'clock in the morning. What's exactly yep. you thinking? I don't get it. So yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm struggling to, to be as consistent as I like to think of myself as being, as I watch everything mm-hmm. and I find myself having all kinds of different reactions to stuff. So what about yeah, you? Yeah. And I, you know, it's, well, it's, it's, it goes back to that thing of, oh, first world problems. You know, <laughs> so like, we we are um, like and and I and like you, uh, you know, me and my wife, we go on you know car rides and just to you know get out, get, feel the wind and our our hair and fingertips and all that good stuff. And and right, everybody gets it. We're experiencing this together, um, but that responsibility for us to use wisdom, um, and we have more than enough posts, more than enough studies done on the possibility of a second wave happening and the way to speed us toward that is to be in 700 square feet with 40 people um till four in the morning where uh you're throwing all caution to the wind and not even remotely thinking about social distancing or what good practices should be from a health and hygiene perspective and i think for a lot of us that are going to be fall victim to the um the lack of understanding and the lack of empathy uh, that people are showing and care uh, for one another um, is really going to be on the rise. And it's unfortunate, but um, were we really surprised? No. Let's be honest. Were we and, really and surprised by the reaction? No, not at all, actually. And I think this is, um, so I think this kind of brings us to a topic for this week, which is, is, <laughs> I mean, it, and it's, it's all part of a much bigger thing. And it's, you know, there's a lot of, yeah. it's a lot about privilege, right? It's yep. really easy for those of us who can work from home to, yeah. you know, take for granted the fact that not everybody can, like only 40% of the country, like, and that's like conservative numbers, right? Like, like 40% yeah. roughly are capable, have jobs that actually allow themselves to work from home. That leaves 60% who couldn't, even if they wanted to. I mean, that's just not the nature of the work that they do. And that doesn't take into account that out of that 40%, you have people who 
are at the at the lower end of the economic spectrum where maybe they you know are in a situation a living situation that doesn't have reliable internet or they don't have a computer sure. that they can use at home or they're sharing a computer with an entire family of people i mean that that you know so even that 40% is still really generous and it's still yeah represents a fundamental minority. And it's it's really easy for those of us who live in that world to forget about that. And it's yeah. really, you know, and for me, I've been thinking about this a lot and we'll talk about a lot of examples, I'm sure, because there are a lot of horrifying <laughs> examples that we can't escape. And and from your perspective as a black man who lives in Georgia, with I think there are some very relevant current mm -hmm. examples that, that are worth coming back to, but yeah. you know, the, the New York Times posted um, an article this week or this weekend that to me is very telling about a lot of this, right? It talks about why, why there's such a political divide and why they've got this Democrat versus Republican view of things and why you have red states really aggressively opening up sometimes faster than, than, um, you know, medical advice would lead them to. Yeah. And, and the Times, I think, captured something that I think is a much bigger, broader issue. And that's that, you know, the places that have been hit the hardest are basically blue places, right? It's, it's big cities. And the truth is, when we look at the electoral map in the United States, as a rule, and it's not universal, but overall, cities are blue, rural areas are red. That's the way it generally breaks down. And so cities where you've got a higher concentration of people, you've got public transportation, you've got you know, a lot more people coming into contact in a lot smaller areas, those are the areas that have been hit the hardest and hurt the most. And so those are the places where you have people who are maybe a little bit more sensitive. You know, New York City is still pretty locked down. I mean, they're not, nobody in New York City is rushing back out to jump on the subway if they don't have to, right? Like it's not, it's not a place where um, the, the risk is um, disregarded. People understand that yeah. it is very much a real risk when you are in that kind of spatial concentration with other people and the virus contagion rate has been running super high. But then, you know, yeah. hell, I live in Florida, which is a red state. You live in Georgia, which is a red state. I spent the last 10 years in Texas, yep. which is a red state. All of those places, once, especially once you leave the cities, right? Austin, Atlanta, Miami. Okay. Those are like little semi-blue patches and big sea of red. Yeah, so, so you've got these contrasts between right, what the city does and what the experience out in the rural parts of the state actually experience. And they're different. The contagion rate is lower. People have a completely different lifestyle that doesn't have as much risk associated with it. And so while I was while I liked what the Times was, was addressing in terms of the fact that, you know, really it's, it's democratic strongholds that are are really experiencing this, what I think the underlying issue is we live in a country, and it's not just country, because I see this globally as well, where there is a very different life that you live if you live in a city and the adjacent suburbs versus living in a rural area. You don't have the same lifestyle. Your day-to-day -day existence is very, very different. And it's really hard to have a single set of rules or guidelines or practices or anything that fits all of those. And I think this is bringing a lot of that out. And, and I think the unfortunate piece is it's also bringing out a lot of rancor and a lot of, to your, what you, the point you just made, lack of empathy about the fact, yeah. you know what? Okay. I, you know, I live in cities. I'm a city girl. I, I like living in cities, but I have to remind myself <laughs> The people who, you know, live out in farm country and their nearest neighbor is, you know, a half a mile away. Exactly. They have a different way of living and yeah. vice versa. You know, if you live in, I mean, I live in a building on this floor, there are eight or nine units on this floor, which means every time I leave, every time I go take the garbage to the garbage chute, every time I go to the elevator, like that is just the... And that's just staying on this floor. That's not going downstairs. It's not going yeah. anywhere. It's not leaving my building. It's just taking the garbage to the garbage chute. I come into a, a set of secondary contact zones for people who could be sick or who like, and it's, it's a different set of things to think about and worry about. Yeah. And I think the thing that is really 
heartbreaking for me as we look at this is that there is a lot of lack of empathy about the fact that the way I live is the way everybody lives. So why the hell does it matter? Because what you're talking about doesn't apply to me. Yeah. And I think when when you think about, and, and I love the the article you wrote yesterday, particularly around this this idea of how we all experience levels of privilege. And I think uh, Van Jones was another one who, who had a post about, you know, people, as you get further out, people who have the ability to live in these gated communities, they've been social distancing. But it's the idea that this gall and this privilege to say, it's Memorial Weekend for God's sakes, I'm going to go to the beach. And, and just the people that they interviewed I got to die of something like just the, and it, 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 again, and you would blame that on drunkenness. You would blame that on whatever. Now all these people are saying, these people are sitting on the beach doing what they want to do. And funny part about it is if you really look at the economic, social, economic out, like makeup of a lot of those people, how long did it take them to get to that beach? Right. And, and they came from somewhere to go to the beach. Right. And so the people that have the means, that have the resources, but now you're not going to lock me into my home anymore, right? And it's it's just this idea that um, it's time, so I'm going to do instead of the empathy, like, you know what, the the asymptomatic carrier, right? And for me, I'm, I'm cautious because I was around someone who passed away from this thing, right? And this is, this is, but this is mid-March that he passed away. But because I was around him, I now see myself as an asymptomatic person and I, and I move that way when I'm around other people, right? I wear my mask. And again, it's not for me, it's for you that I wear my mask. Right. And I think that's the part of the empathy that I, my concern is for you. I humanize you and our interaction, the interaction that you're about to have with me at the grocery store, unbeknownst to you that I knew someone who died from this thing. and I was around them months ago. Right. And so I think and I'm listening to the news that says, hey, these are some of the deadliest people are the asymptomatic folks who don't know they have or they've been exposed, but their body is dealing with it and they may be carriers and passing this thing off. And so I'm like, you know what? I need to be mindful of that anytime I'm around somebody. And I think that level of care and humanity in which we deal with each other, I think that's the most disheartening thing that a lot of people aren't taking into consideration to include who we're calling our leaders, right? And to make this a blue and red thing, to make this a political thing, to me, you're, 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 a, you're a whole lot of things other than a human being to make it about that right? To, to say, you're not going to provide support. You're not going to provide, you're going to withhold resources. In the United States of America, you're having blue and red conversations about withholding resources because of political lines, instead of looking and seeing people as human beings. Like, to me, that's the issue. That That's one of the fundamental systematic issues of this entire thing, is the lines that are being drawn, and how, 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 uncharacteristic of leadership are people in the highest positions are being they're acting like toddlers and i don't care what anybody says as a former united states army officer the level and the lack of mission success operationally at the execution the transparency in the way things have been moving i would have been fired for a nth of the incompetence displayed during this. And to have those leaders literally going in front of cameras as if a hundred thousand dead is somehow, some way, some win, when you touted for the better part of months of how this wasn't an issue. But now you're literally inferring it could have been where a hundred thousand people are dead in a matter of two and a half months. Well, and we're not done. We're, we're not done. Oh we have God. parts of the country that are that are climbing. And so I think this is, to me, this is where, and I, I completely, completely agree with you, right? The lack of leadership is, or, or I shouldn't say the lack of, but I think the toxic leadership yeah. is there really upsetting. Because here's the thing, right? And so um, the UK, I think, is a great example, right? Because mm. Boris Johnson is just their version of the same stuff. And yet the UK has rallied 
together in a way that hasn't broken down in the kind of like aggressive toxic partisanship that we are finding ourselves in here. And part of it has been because they've taken this sort of call to action approach. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, as a history buff, I always look back to things like the recession, things like World War II, right? Where we had, we had an acknowledgement that there would be sacrifice required. We had an acknowledgement at the highest level. This is going to suck. We need to buckle in. Everybody needs to do their part. We have to get out of this together or we don't get out of this at all. This is not an every man for himself kind of situation. And so I think the thing that is, there's a really great example when um, before, before, in the early, in the early part of World War II, there were German U-boats up and down the East coast of the U.S. And they were actually using, they were, they were, surfacing or coming close, they were surfacing and using the light at night and using the lights from the cities to find shipping targets and sink ships off the coast of the U.S. They were doing it from Portland, Maine, all the way down to Miami. And so these German U-boats were out, you know, along, along the shelf of the water. They would come, they would come up and it was dark. They didn't have, you know, night vision. They didn't have any of this stuff. It was beginning of World War II. They were using the lights from the cities, from the overflow, from these coastal cities to find their targets and sink them. And it took three months of cajoling and begging and pleading for these coastal cities to go into voluntary blackout so that they could prevent the German U-boats from having the visibility to see to sink ships off the coast. And so there's, there's a part of me that, that thinks about that when I look at what we're doing here, right? But the difference, I think more than anything else, is that there was, there was a stated objective. I, yes, the cities objected to it. Yes, they didn't like it. Yes, it was completely inconvenient and to some extent dangerous because, you know, especially back then, again, nobody had night, night goggles. Like it was, you black out a city at night and you're, you're opening yourself up to some other, other challenges. But there was still a fundamental call to action. And I think that's where I feel particularly sad that we don't have that, right? We didn't have, we didn't have, and, and, you know, we can say his name or not. I don't like saying his name anymore than anybody else. But the truth is if Obama or Clinton or frankly, even either of the Bushes had come out and said, look, this is coming. We don't know how bad it's going to be, but this is going to be tough and we're all going to have to buckle down. It's going to require sacrifice. I know this is going to be inconvenient. I know people are going to get sick and die. I know there's going to be a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and I get that. But the only way we are going to get out of this as, as minimally scathed as possible is by rallying together and recognizing that we all have a part to play. And I think that for me watching the fact that, there hasn't been there hasn't been an acknowledgement that we all have to do this together. It has broken down along rancorous partisanship lines for reasons that you know the Times example is a good one. We have we have a very different contagion rate around the country. You go out to you know East Texas, there's like almost nothing. There's you know you go out to to the rural parts of like Utah. No, there's no there's almost nothing there. So I understand that, but the truth is. That was true, you know, what, again, whether it was the Depression, whether it was World War II or anything else, there were always pockets that were less hurt or less damaged exactly. than others. It didn't stop a leadership body from coming forward and saying, we all have to get through this together. So we all have something that needs to happen and we have to all commit to sacrificing what we need to, to get to the other side intact. And I think that, that you know, it's, it's very sad for me that we haven't done that because I think that's what, what's needed. We, we've had 50 states that have just responded differently. There's no coordinated effort. We've had you know states having to compete against each other for purchasing, like actually outbidding each other for purchasing metal equipment, me- medical equipment for their, you know, their hospitals and for their emergency workers. You know, I think there, it, there's been no unifying anything and yeah. no honestly, just no recognition that this is going to suck. Stop. Don't pretend it's going to be okay. Don't pretend it's going to go away. Don't pretend we can ignore it and play ostrich and like, it's going to suck. Yeah. But, and I think the big, that, that biggest part, what you just said, the acknowledgement, mm-hmm. 
the acknowledgement, right? Just say it out loud, right? It's like, okay, you're in school, you're in elementary school. Everybody say it with me. It's going to suck. Okay, everybody good? Let's say it one more time, right? And it's, but it's funny how they didn't unify for a solution, but they wanted to unify regionally on how we're going to reopen. Yep. Well, and, and not only that, right. So, so in addition to, in addition, again, this comes back to like, no FDR used to, used to say that, you know, the American people can take a lot if they know, if they know what's being asked of them. And and so that was his approach during the depression and world war II was again, acknowledge it and then make people give people a sense of empowerment, give them a sense of what it is that they can do to help. And that's what we haven't, that's what we haven't seen. Now, again, this is also where, you know, again, as a Politico, it's interesting to me to watch how some governors have really emerged as, as really strong Mm -hmm. um, regional figures in this because they have done this. You know, Gavin Newsom is done in California, you know, Andrew Cuomo's done it in New York, where they've come out and said, look, this, this absolutely sucks. And we need you to do this. This is going to be super important. You know, my grandmother lives in a, in a senior, in a senior facility in Northern California and they locked down really early and, and they were getting enough news and enough advice earlier on that a lot of people who could, including my grandmother, cause she lives in a, in her own apartment in that complex, um, actually started self-isolating even earlier than that. So of course she's losing her marbles. She wants out of there like nobody's business. But the truth is she also got good information and they were told, this is how we get out of this. This is what you can do to contribute to our overall success. You know, and, and that's, I think, the part that's super hard about where we're at right now is that there's, there's no call to action. There's no yeah. empowering people to do something or to feel like what the sacrifices they're making are actually for a purpose and are, are going to be meaningful. Yes, it doesn't always look like it day to day, but I can promise you every, you know, person who went back to work during World War II because the men were being shipped off, every, every woman, every, you know, grandmother who found themselves, you know, riveting airplane sides in World War II, she didn't go to work every day thinking that, you know, this was always super fun, but she did it believing that she was doing something that mattered to help get to the other side and whatever sacrifices were involved in that, you know, not seeing her husband because he was overseas for four years. Like they all knew that the sacrifices they were making were for a purpose. And that's what I feel is just painfully missing right now is there is no unifying message about a goal and value and a purpose and why our sacrifices matter and acknowledging and thanking people for doing it and for being part of the solution and not throwing gasoline on the fire of the problem. Exactly. And I, th- and I think what, one of the things, you know, you, the overarching thing is, is this level of accountability and ownership from the people who are holding the position and them actually becoming more for us for people, right? Everybody, we need a rallying cry. We need somebody to surround ourselves that we know and we we have confidence in, we trust. And again, this is organizational leaders. These are, you know, officials that we've elected in different things like that. And I think that accountability and ownership, people want to feel a part of something. Like just tell, like you said, tell me what you need me to do, right? And, and instead, you have pockets of us who are owning this. And we're doing with it the right things, right? I'm listening to the experts. I'm listening to the people that I believe have good information and I'm going to follow it, me and my family, right? I'm making it me and my family. Like I'm not going to have a rogue family member just go do what they want to do and end up sick and, in, in you know, get all the rest of us sick. But getting, yeah, getting other people sick. And, that, well, and, and that's I what think, it is. And I think this comes up, comes back to, you know, and this comes back to privilege, right? Because when you have, yeah. When you have leaders who have empathy, when you have leaders who recognize that, you know what, there are times in life when sacrifice is absolutely what the situation calls for, then you can have somebody who can say, you know what, yeah, great. I, you know, I live in the White House and I have access to all the testing I need. I can, you know, I'm fine or I can make myself fine. But guess what? I'm one person 
out of, you know, an entire country of 350 million. And there is no way that we're going to get through this if everybody just acts like me. And so I think that comes back to the fact that, you know, I think that the nature of privilege is rooted in that inability to recognize that your existence doesn't look like other people's. And you mentioned this before, right? When you were talking about how you used to struggle with the definition of empathy that, you know, you look at me and be like, okay, well, I don't know what it's like to be a white woman. So how the hell, you know, and any more than I know what it's like to be a black man who lives in the South. Like that's not, but on the other hand, the flip side of that is if we can't actually have a conversation about this, how, you know, I, I, we, we're not going to get anywhere. I was on a, I was, I was on a, a screening call for a women's international women's organization. And they asked me, um, they asked me what, as a woman in business, what one of the most difficult challenges I've had to face is. And I said that, you know, for me, the hardest thing has been working for and with men who I watch behave in ways that are truly disgusting. And for the sake of my own career, I've had to hold my tongue, right? And there's just a certain amount of that that I have at points in time made the choice to do. Now, A, I'm going to freely acknowledge that I had the privilege of being in a, in a position to make that choice. And there are plenty of women who, who you know, find themselves working where they don't. Um, but the truth is, I also am not ever going to see that change if I always make that choice. Like that choice is, is about my comfort. It's not about the fact that, you know what, there, there are women, especially women of color who, you know, are, are of a larger population and a younger age now coming up behind me that have even more reason to be appalled and horrified at sexual harassment or any of the crap that you see in these, in these business environments that, you know, me and my peers have largely learned to kind of, you know, roll with, and we can be one of the boys and we can, you know, I mean, you know, there, there've been plenty of moments that I would not ever, if I had a daughter, there are plenty of moments when I would think to myself, shit, I hope she never has to experience that. Cause that was messed up. Um, and you know, and I think that's, but again, that comes back to having empathy just because I got through it. And just because, you know, I have kind of a tough hide on some of these fronts doesn't mean that I think everybody should just suck it up and live with it. Like that's not okay. Yeah. I, I, and you, you hit on something right there of we, it's a, it's a behavior, a tolerated behavior um, and things that, we've allowed right that's how you come up with statements that this is the way we've done it this is the way we've been doing it that's why that stuff is that's why those phrases are a thing is because assertiveness and assertive communication has just now become a thing um to where i don't need you to feel threatened by what i'm saying i need to be seen i need to feel heard i need to feel like i you're inclusive of what i have to say my voice and i think because voices are being whether they're new voices or they're things that have, you know, needed to be said for years, they're now coming to the forefront and the people in charge um, that are of the certain persuasion are feeling attacked. Um, and they're feeling like their world is being, or their well-being is being shifted. Uh, well, it is. Um, and it should have been years ago. And, and I apologize for not speaking up sooner. Um, <laughs> and making you more uncomfortable with your reality. Um, but in, um, enough's enough. And I think as we approach this privilege, it, it's going to take these types of conversations that me and you have every single week to address these topics and to help people live in this world that we've been living in of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And there being a place where I'm an advocate for you, you're an advocate for me, and not just because of our race or our gender or what we believe in, but because we're human. And, and I think when you're empathetic to that, then we go about it where we are treating everybody in accordance with value-based leadership, where empathy is leading the way because I do see you, I do hear you, I do care about what you bring to the table. And guess what? I am going to have no tolerance for anybody who tries to violate your way of life. And that has to be the line. 
So it's so interesting to me how, again, back to, you know, our own little silos, right? It's so easy to forget that our daily life isn't what everybody else's daily life is, you know? And, and, um, I think, you know, as, as a woman in her forties with no kids, I see this like most consistently in my life because, you know, I have very few friends who don't have kids. And so, you know, their, their whole life kind of revolves around the school year and kids extracurricular activities. And, you know, I mean, it's just, that's, that's the way their life is organized because kids are a huge, you know, piece of, of that paradigm. And so I've kind of, um, but the, the truth is like you still, no matter how um, aware you are of some of those things, you still have other blind spots. And I remember I, I was on a date about a year and a half ago with, um, when I was still living in Austin with the guy who was a former military black officer. Um, and he was really, um, he was really sort of appalled with Callan uh, Kaepernick about, um, Kaepernick about, um, uh, he was saying he was, you know, all about himself and that it was, you know, and, and I was kind of sitting there listening to him just kind of go on this rant. And I'm like, so do you think there's been no value in, in, you know, his, you know, pro in the protest that, you know, and just taking a knee at, at, at the national anthem. And he's like, no, absolutely not. He goes, I don't think it's done anything. And I'm like, well, I would agree that there wasn't that much attention paid to it until, the other side freaked the hell out and they made such a big stink about it that then it, you know, that is actually what drew a lot of attention to it. I said, but you don't, you don't think there's been any value or any increased awareness around the issue of um, police brutality against particularly black men. And he's like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, I have to say that's not I'm like, I, you know, I'm a white woman. The last thing I'm going to do is tell a black man that his experience of racism is not applicable. Like as in so not my, not my place. But I kept thinking, I said to him, I said, well, all I can tell you is that in my fairly white and heavily Latino world, um, you know, I think we all kind of knew it was there. It's like at the back of your mind. It's not like an active thing. And I'd say that, yeah, actually, Kaepernick's protest raised a lot of awareness in my world. And he looked at me and he was so like shocked that that was true. Like he actually didn't believe me. He argued with me and I'm like, all right, well, first of all, I think this date is over. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, I, I don't, it was a room just, again, it was just this interesting reminder to me. Yeah. That your normal and my normal are normal to us respectively, but yeah. they look very different to each other. And so, you know, and, you know, and, and, and now we see even more of it, right? You, you have a 26 year, 25 year old black man who's killed in Alabama, in, in Georgia, who doesn't even, who's, uh, and it takes a month for the police to arrest anything only because a video, video got leaked. family pushed out a video. And, and it's, so, so I was talking and having a conversation with my brother earlier about rationalizing reality. And, and I think in a lot of cases, uh, to, to that gentleman's, um, he needs coaching, um, because <laughs> there, there are some blind spots that, that he has in his life. And, uh, Oh, trust me. So my, my old business partner, who is also yeah. a black man, when yeah. I told him about this conversation, because I said the same thing I said to him, I'm like, I am, I am not going to tell a black man that his experience of racism living in the South is wrong. Like I, like I would never dream of saying that. And my business partner, you know, we're in Austin, Texas. He's looking yeah. at me. He's like, don't tell me that was so-and-so. I know that guy. He's an idiot. <laughs> yeah. And, and I know those, I know those guys and we, and they rationalize and, and they rationalize the the inhumane treatment of our our own people, and and that's why the privileged who who try to rationalize this away, talk it away. It's not that bad. It's not that okay. You haven't had to have the talk, and if you are a black man in America, and you go out there with that reality like it's not going to happen to you because of where you live and what you do ask the man in central park who who had amy call the police on him and then begin to act out as if he was doing something to her and he's this highly educated bird watching harvard man 
who in probably in a million years would be like, I know I'm not recording this lady makeup that I'm attacking her. But again, Will Smith had a post. Racism, racism has always been there. It's just now being recorded. And the fact that, and I'm so grateful for him to record it. So everybody can see like, no, this is what we encounter when we walk out the door. And, and I don't wake up every day like, Lord, please protect me from anybody who with their privilege is going to encounter me with their privilege and use it against me as a weapon. And, and so for us in this world, like to dehumanize anybody at this point in this stage, I am not surprised anymore, but I will not stand by and allow it to happen because I don't want to get that phone call. I don't want anybody to receive that phone call about me. It happening to me. And I was talking to my wife today, regard if anything ever happens to me, don't let them say I had PTSD. Don't let them say I was drunk. Don't let them say that. Don't let them dehumanize me if it happens to me. Right. And then again, to have to have that conversation, like to have to have that conversation, like hurts my heart, but I got to have a conversation. Well, you know, it, that hence what you just said reminded me that, you know, before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat, uh, the, the, organ, the, the communities actually were looking for um, people to kind of be the standard bearer. And there was a woman not long before Rosa Parks who was a young, a young black woman. As I recall, she was in her early 20s, but she was unmarried and pregnant. And she had had a similar encounter, but she wasn't a good poster child. So they didn't allow her to be the standard bearer yeah. for the Montgomery bus boycott. It ended up needing to be Rosa Parks because she was less sort of objectively threatening. And I mm -hmm. think about that a lot when, um, you know, and it's, it's the cruelty that we kind of inflict on black men. Now, black women get a whole other set of, oh, of yeah. really <laughs> shitty things pulled on them, um, you know, but it's a really, you know, I look at, I have, I have a friend that I grew up with and she's, uh, she and her wife live in Los Angeles and they adopted a little boy who had been in the foster care system um, and he's black and she's, you know, there are two white women raising a little boy in LA. Um, and she, it's, she's constantly coming back to like, I don't, I can't not fear for my son in this world like he's gonna grow up to be a black man in los angeles like that doesn't that shouldn't have to be a terrifying thing for a parent but of course it is and so it's it's one of those things that again i don't know that you know nobody like you know and renee brown talks about privilege a lot in this and she you know points out that nobody thinks about it if they don't have to because you don't want to have to it is it is a horrible, horrible thing to actually have to get into. And so if you don't have to, you probably don't bother. But the truth yeah. is that by itself is the definition of privilege because you have the choice. Exactly. And the thing is, is that it's not, it doesn't go away. Like it never, it never ends. And it's not, it's not something that, it's not something that you ever cannot think about, right? I used to have, you know, a sexy little red sports car convertible. And when my business partner, who was a, again, a black man in Texas, would need to borrow my car to go for a drive. You know, in Texas, you can have, um, they allow you to have your insurance and everything on your phone. No, no, when he took my car, I'm like, it was, and it had just been after there had been some um, uh, recent examples of police brutality near Austin and in Texas. I mean, and Austin, again, very blue for being in Texas, but it's still Texas. Um, and he had to borrow, borrow my car. And I'm like, okay, well, yes, absolutely. Of course you can borrow my car. I am printing up hard copies of everything because I don't want you to go to pull out your phone if some redneck cop decides to pull you over and have him decide you're going for a gun when you're going for your phone. I'm not like, I, I don't want to have that conversation with your wife and children. Not going to happen. And, and, but the truth is, you know what? Every ex-boyfriend I've had has drove that car. All the white guys drove that car. I ain't never worried about that with any of them, ever, ever. But I had to worry about it with my business partner because he was just a magnet for that kind of crap. Yeah. Kudos but, to you, though. Well, again, like, you know, I, you know, I love his kids. I don't, like, that's, you know, and he has a boy and a girl. And again, like, I watch... I watch the two of them. I watch how they react to things. I watch, how, you know, and I think to myself, yeah. like, 
this is so, there are so many battles that I think our parents and our grandparents thought were done. You know, my mom died at 39 and I know she died thinking that, you know, feminism had pretty much like licked the, licked the patriarchy pretty well. Yeah. And there's a part of me that's just so glad she didn't live to see now. Like yeah. just appalled by some of this crap, you know, and I'm sure that, that, you know, that's equally true for any number of, of any number of black families who had members who yeah, marched yeah. on Washington or who, who actively worked and, and helped organize and, and fight and God push back Jim Crow and all this other kinds of crap. And now, and now you guys have a horrible reality where you just have to be grateful that iPhone shoved a freaking camera in your damn phone so that, you know, yeah. you can help protect yourself at least a little bit from yeah. unwarranted attacks. Like it's such a, it's such a horrible, horrible thing. But again, it comes back to where is, where is there, where's the empathy and where is the leadership that comes back to saying this is, again, you know, we can go back to Colin Kaepernick, right? The right didn't need to take the approach that they did in responding to him. I mean, for starters, if they really didn't think it was a thing, they could have just stayed the hell quiet. And like, yeah. honestly, most people wouldn't have noticed. Um, but they chose to politicize something. They chose to be contentious. They chose to be rancorous in how they responded to it. And they chose to respond without empathy. 100%. And I, and I think that that is the part that I don't, I don't understand. And I don't, I don't, um, I don't know what to do about that. I don't know how we get to a point where we can actually start seeing people who demonstrate a lack of empathy start being more conscious of it and making, making the choice to stop, take a breath, not react in the moment and say, okay, look, how would I like to actually show up to this instead of just being judgmental and having a knee jerk response? Yeah. I don't know. I think that's the start though, right? We, we get them, we get them in the conversation and we begin to facilitate understanding. Um, and then we turn that knowledge into actual daily habits, right? So we can build consistency around this thing because we, we've been consistently doing it wrong um, in so many other areas. It's time that we actually start making this thing move in the other direction with moving our feet in that direction with one conversation, one step at a time. And I think conversations like me and you are having today, that's, that's how we do it. Just one, one conversation, one movement at a time. And maybe, and, and I don't know, I honestly don't know where else to start. So I think that's probably yeah. just as well as any, but I do like you, I like practical tips. So to your point about, you know, daily, a daily practice around starting to, you know, mm. shed judgment and, and exercise empathy. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah. Um, be willing to have the conversation around it, right? It's an unconscious bias thing, right? It's the fast, fast brain, slow brain, right? And pause, right? When, when somebody, when you see a reaction, right? Pause enough to say, Laura, why? Okay. I just said something that appears like you had a reaction to it. What, what was that? And instead of wanting to be heard, right? I'm gonna get my point out. No, be present in communication and say something I just said affected you. And I wanna leave space for me to hear what a, what, why you had that reaction, right? I could be totally off, but let me know. I'm, here's your space. So, you know, the underlying point that, that comes back to is actually one of the surprises when we went through coaching training. Mm -hmm. You know, I really, I really like to think of myself as being non-judgmental. <laughs> Oh, I, so, I was so attached to that view of myself and going through coaching training. And I, I was appalled at how much more judgmental I really was than I thought I was. Yeah. And I don't know, for me, when I look at, at this kind of like layer cake of stuff, right? You can put mm -hmm. leadership at the top, right? But we get to, we talked before about, you know, just self-awareness being yep. So important. Um, and, you know, in, without self-awareness, you can't deal with, you know, judgment. And then you can't deal with being empathetic. And then you can't, yeah. there's so many things and they, they stack up to that point of getting to leadership. And again, one of my, my biggest beefs with our current, you know, leadership is that they kind of tried to skip all those steps and just exactly. top of the, of the food chain. And, and now we've got this whole, you know, empty foundation underneath them that, that doesn't hold water. But I think for us and for, for talking to people who, you know, might not 
view things the same way, you know, mm -hmm. for, for people who, you know, don't live in, don't live in a world that resembles ours. I think that the idea of acknowledging an inclination to judgment so that you can, to your point, right, you can recognize when it's happening in the moment and don't just keep, keep going on. I think that's, yeah. a, I think it's a really good, um, I think it's a really good point is that I think, you know, when we, I think it's common if we're having conversation and I see that something that I said is clearly triggered you, I might just change the topic or move in a different direction or try to speed past it instead of stopping and saying, oh, wow. Okay. So I think something just happened here. Uh, clearly, clearly, you know, something I said brought up something for you. Yeah. And I that wasn't what I was intending. So let's have the conversation. Yeah. And I think that's really great when you're witnessing it to other people. How about when you do it for yourself? How about when you feel yourself triggered and reacting in a way that later you look back and think, oh, that wasn't cool. I didn't like showing up like that. Yeah. And I think just what you said, it's, it's a form of acknowledgement, right? Whether you're doing it with somebody or yourself, acknowledge what you just experienced, right? And I, and I love this exercise of um, doing a kind of a daily uh daily check-ins and you can set yourself markers throughout your day um, to do check-ins with yourself to say, all right, based on where I'm at today, it's noon and from eight o'clock to now, what's happened and how have my interactions been? And I think the moment that I started doing that check-in work, I became more present and aware of how things were affecting me. And, um, or, got to noon and I was super unproductive. Why? Right. I, it wasn't like I didn't have anything to do. What made me go down this road, just sitting and loathing and, Oh, I feel bad. What happened? Why did I allow that feeling to overtake me? And where did it, what was its root? And can I address the root? And I think if, as you do these check-ins, these personal self-awareness check-ins, these self-management check-ins, you can make sure that you're staying present to what's happening with you. And I think you'll find yourself towards the end of the day being less drained. Actually, I feel in this person, I feel less drained when I do these check-ins and I know the days that I don't, because I get to the end of the day, I just want to take a nap. It's been taking a nap. And so I do, I do these check-ins. I do check-ins throughout my day. Okay. That's, that's a good one. Um, so I think for me, the thing that has been helpful is um, I have, I'm like, I'm, Kind of, a, I have a notebook addiction problem, so I have like notebooks everywhere <laughs> and sticky notes too. I have notebooks, I have sticky notes. I'm like, I'm like a, a paper junkie when it comes to that, which is, I know, which is ironic because like I live such like a digital life in every other respect, and I'm like, no, yeah. oh, I don't, I don't put junk mail in my house. I don't bring it in, but like notebooks and sticky notes. And so actually, what I started, what I started doing, um, at just trying to build awareness, especially nice, because nice. at that time I was, um. I was working in a situation where I was kind of going from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. Um, and so I, you know, and I was online because I was working from home and um, I would keep a sticky note by my, on my computer. And when I felt myself having a judgmental reaction, I would just take it off and I didn't write what it was, but it was, again, it, part of it was me getting over my own view of myself as not being judgmental. And like, that was kind of the first piece, right? was, no, no, no. All right. Smarty pants. You think you're not being judgmental, but guess what? Every single time you have a, you know, that was stupid. What the hell are they thinking? You feel inclined to roll your eyes. Like any, any of those kind of like judgmental manifestations, anytime you even feel the hint of an urge, just check the mark. And I would do that. And I did that for a few weeks in the beginning. Wow. And I was horrified at how many tick marks I had. Like, and I would do it and I, I put a date on it and I just put it away. And I, and so like over time I looked, I could look back and I could see like dates. And again, I didn't, I didn't make any notes about what it was or how yeah. I reacted. Just, it was just an awareness of me having a judgmental reaction to something wow. I did or said, and I could see them start to decrease over time. Um, but then I could get into more of like the things that consistently managed to trigger me. Yeah. Right. And there are still I mean, I've gotten a lot better and a lot more aware about catching myself in that moment, but there's still, there are still absolutely some things that will just shoot me through the moon wow. super fast. Um, and so I don't, I don't pretend that I've, I've uh, gotten rid of the judgment inclination, but I've definitely gotten more aware of it. And I started realizing, um, 
I think over time that there are really only a few things that consistently manage to get under my skin enough. Mm. Um, and once you start really digging into that, it kind of becomes easier to recognize that, okay, this is either this is a person who has a tendency of behaving in a way that bothers me, or this is a situation that does it so that I can have a heightened sense of awareness going into that, preparing to manage my mouth and not roll my eyes and do all that kind of stuff. But it took, it, it took time. And it really, I mean, the first step though really was letting go of my, my attachment to my definition of myself as being someone who, Oh, I'm not judgmental at all. I'm very open-minded. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Oh well, yeah. So much for that. That was a nice idea. Um, but like, I think those are, I think those are both like, you know, useful techniques, right? I like your check-in cause you can, I think that one is useful especially if you've got stuff that um, you want to capture a little bit more uh, detail around what mm -hmm. it was that did it. Um, you know, like I said, for me the, in the beginning, it was just like, okay, how many times a day am I finding myself, you know, rolling my eyes or trying not to roll my eyes? Like, and I think that's the other thing too, right? Like we think of, we don't necessarily always think of some of those little things, oh, yeah. those manifestations of judgment, but dude, if you're rolling your eyes at someone, you're judging them. Oh, 100%. Um, and there are so many, so many little ways that stuff like that surfaces. And so I think just starting to, starting to build awareness around when that's happening, you know, it's, it's a, it's a stage process, right? You got to start off with, you know, when you're becoming aware of when you're doing it, and then you can start digging into why it's happening and what specific things are really triggering it. And then you can start figuring out how do I start unraveling it? And like, do I really need to get worked up about that stuff? Probably not. Those things don't matter. All right. So these things I do legitimately care about. They do. Yep truly bother me. So how do I, how do I acknowledge that they matter without getting like hyper judgmental and, you know, pissy and bitchy for somebody who, who might not view them the same way as me, which gets us back to where we started. And this, this very complicated and unfortunate politically divided situation yes. that we're in and, and back to self-awareness, non-judgment, empathy, and recognizing that without those things, it's really, um, it's really hard to lead with integrity. Yeah. But we need each other to get through it. We do. We do. And it's going to be a long haul. And unfortunately, I think that's, again, back to, God, if there was one message, I wish I could just like plant everybody's brains. This is a marathon, not a sprint. 100%. We all have a part to play. Yeah, we do. We do. Man, some good. It's a, it was a good one today. Yeah, we got some meaty stuff today, pal. We do. All righty. Well, in that case, that is this week's episode. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week, Lawrence. And I will talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you soon, Alora. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me and Lawrence in this week's episode of Grow or Die. Join us next week when we'll take on our next topic. In the meantime, have a fantastic week.